Well, shall we get started? Great. Mark, would you pray for us? I'll do that. See, this is how you get a room to quiet. Let's pray. Mark, would you do that? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for the privilege we have to gather to study your word. I want to pray that you would, uh, for each one of us, reveal yourself to us. Thank you for uh, what you have shared with us. Thank you for the life that we have because of what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Good morning. I am extremely privileged to be standing up here, getting a chance to, to bring the word to you this morning. Um, please don't compare me to Tim. I know this is Tim and this is me. So um, what we're going to do this morning is um, we're going to take a fascinating look at the first three chapters of the book of Matthew. And here's the reason we're going to do this. Every one of the Gospels... The four Gospels are written from four points of view, right? If we were standing at the corner of Midkiff and Wadley, and we saw a car accident, and there was a group of you on the south side, a group of you on the north side, a group of you on the east side, and a group of you on the west side, we'd all see it from a different perspective, right? And we would report it from a different perspective. And if we went back to tell different people, each one of us would have a different audience that we would be telling it to, right? So, what we get in the four Gospels is this. We get four different writers speaking to four different audiences, unfolding Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. It's an incredible look of how God weaves the four Gospels together to give us this marvelous picture of His Son. And what we typically get is this. We get the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is trying to point Jesus as the King to a primarily Jewish audience, and it starts with the genealogy. It's something we're going to look at this morning. You get the book of Mark, which primarily looks at Jesus as a servant with a typically Roman audience, a Gentile audience, and he starts with John the Baptist. You get the book of Luke, portraying Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite terms for himself a primarily Greek audience, and it starts with the birth. And you get John, who looks at the Son of God, who looks at the deity side. It's a universal audience primarily, and he starts with, in the beginning, was the Word. Right? So we get these four different perspectives, and the one I want to hone in on this morning is this one. It is the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, in the first three chapters, what he writes unfolds for us Jesus as the king. Now remember it from this perspective. When Jesus came, the Jewish audience wanted somebody who was in David's um, in David's image. They wanted a king who was going to come in and erase the oppression of the, of the Romans upon them, right? They wanted a guy who was going to ride in on his white horse, sword high, slashing through the enemies. And when Jesus didn't do that, you had a Jewish audience that said, well, he can't possibly be who we were looking for. So what Matthew unfolds for us is this, that he is the king to a primarily Jewish audience, and he begins with the genealogy. Now, the neat thing is, in the first three chapters, we're going to look at seven, including the genealogy, seven statements, six of them prophecies, 
that Jesus fulfills that Matthew points as absolute, no question about it. This is proof positive that Jesus is the king we were looking for. Place you'd like to go this morning? Bless you. Let me rephrase that. Is this a place you'd like to go this morning? Yes. Good. Turn with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This first one I call the genealogy of Jesus, because that's what it is. And there's some very specific things about the genealogy of Jesus that we need to point out. Now, I will tell you, we're going to be really running fast. We've got about 30 minutes. We've got to get through seven of these. So I'm going to be just going. If you have a question, stop me. Um, But we're going to be really, really plowing through these pretty quick. All right? So we look at the, this is the genealogy. This starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we could spend six years on the genealogy and we can uncover every single person in the genealogy. We could do it down the line, all the different people that are included. But there's a couple of really neat things that happen in this genealogy. It's broken down into three periods of 14 generations. The really neat thing about that is when you look at the Hebrew word for David, it comes out to the, to the, the, the numerical equivalent of 14. Kind of a neat little thing that God does there. But starting with this, look at verse 1. And it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that is absolutely intentional. Who is David? The king. The king. And most likely, the best king in all of the history of Israel, right? Some would argue maybe Solomon, but most would, most would argue that David was the king of the nation of Israel. And so who is Jesus identified with immediately? Right? So this doesn't take us all the way back to Adam. This takes us to David and to Abraham. To David, to identify Jesus Christ as what? As the king... Because this is the lineage, this is the heritage. The heritage here is that, David, that, that Jesus is the son of David. Now this takes us also back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, which is where we get unfolded the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God makes with David the king. And that covenant primarily is this, that there is a forever king on a forever throne that's coming. Now understand what I just said. There is a forever king on a forever throne It will be the throne of David, it will be the kingdom established by David, but it will be an eternal kingdom, and Jesus is the one who sits on it. So right at the very beginning of this, just in the genealogy, if you were Jewish, to equate Jesus as the son of David would have equated you monumentally with him as being the king. Secondarily, we look at, and we studied this in the book of Ruth, we look at the the fallout from this as we see that Ruth uh, Ruth and Boaz gave birth to Obed, gave birth to Jesse, gave birth to David. So you see the Davidic line continuing all the way through that. And by the way, in the genealogy, you'll see Ruth show up in the genealogy. So out of this, we get this first identifier in the genealogy that he is the son of David. The second one we get is he is the son of whom? Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel. So the equation here is not only is Jesus equated with Abraham where God started the nation of Israel going back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. That is the one that promises land, seed, and blessing forever. Land, seed, and blessing forever that will come through ultimately Jesus Christ who will be the fulfillment of that. 
But that's the continuation now from Abraham to David to Jesus himself. So even in the beginning of the genealogy, and you can look at Luke's genealogy, doesn't go back to Abraham and David. You look at the beginning genealogy that starts... Oh, this is uh, uh, Genesis 5 that takes us all the way back to Adam again. This is the only genealogy that takes us back to first to David and then to Abraham. So just by the beginning here... Matthew, the gospel writer, points to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment because He is the one who is the King. You see it? Great. (laughs) Good. So, now that we've got that, that's the genealogical part of this thing. There's a lot more that, that, that wraps around this. But it does establish, for what Matthew is trying to say, it does establish Jesus as King. Second one we're going to look at. Turn with me to Matthew 1. Somebody read 20. Let's go 20 through 20, just 20 through 25. Right? Somebody read 20 through 25, chapter 1. While he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you and marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and we shall call it Keep going. Go through 25. 25. Uh, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name This is the one that's called the birth prophecy. So this is the first of six prophecies. Now that we've got the genealogy in place, here comes the first of six prophecies. And this one goes back to Isaiah 7.14. When we look at the actual quote in this, coming out in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Or, as Matt phrased it, Thank you. I give the southern accent. Manuel, right? Okay. Because I'm of the southern tribe of Israel, right? Okay. So here we get now this great unfolding. The Holy Spirit brings from Matthew this Isaiah 7.14 prophecy forward. But notice a couple of things first. The first thing we notice in this thing, go back to verse 20. And it says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of whom? Okay, so what's the connector? Right back to the genealogy again. So Matthew is telling us this is the king, this is the prophecy about the king, because Joseph is of that line, the son of David. So we've got the prophecy, we've got the genealogical line here. Now typically in prophecy, here's what happens, and I know you all having gone through the prophecy course that, that Tim took you through, you know this. When you get an Old Testament prophecy, typically there, are, there is an immediate fulfillment and there's a future fulfillment. It looks like two peaks on a mountain. Those two fulfillments look side by side until you get some distance and some history and then you see that there's typically a, a period between the first fulfillment and the second. So Isaiah gives us this first fulfillment. Behold, the virgin shall bear a son. And what this means is, in that time period, the, old, the first fulfillment was this. 
It was that God was looking at, through Isaiah, was looking at King Ahaz. Ahaz was in a battle between two warring nations where he was right in the middle, and he was afraid that he was going to be destroyed. These two kings were coming at him. Very specifically, this was King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel. And he was in an impending war. Ahaz was in this impending war. And what God says through Isaiah is this, I will be your deliverer. And here's how you will know I will be a deliverer. Within two years of the birth of this child, this war will be over. And I will be the one that will deliver you. And Ahaz, you will see, it's not you that will deliver you, it's me, the God of the universe. The immediate fulfillment, most scholars believe, the immediate fulfillment came in the birth of Isaiah's son. Now, if you don't like your name, here is the name of Isaiah's son. Maher Shalal Hajbaz. So be really grateful for your name, all right? Maher Shalal Hajbaz. The name literally means this, speed the spoil and hasten the booty. The understanding, yeah, again, be thankful for your name and what it means. Um, But literally it symbolized both the judgment and the salvation. That there would be an eventual spoil, there would be an eventual booty, but it was going to happen in God's timing when He destroyed these two nations. And He would be the one to be the deliverer. Now we take that fast forward and we move it to Christ's birth. And we get the Holy Spirit that brings Isaiah 7.14 in that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall call his name God with us. It's the exact same phrasing that's used back in the time of Isaiah talking to Ahaz to say God is with you. But the Holy Spirit brings it forward and Matthew's teaching says God is with you in the form of the king, the son of David. Through the genealogical line of Joseph, this is the son of David who has come, and he will be your deliverer. You see what Matthew's doing here? What the Holy Spirit's doing with this particular passage? And so we get this incredible statement that's unfolded about who David, about who David is, and ultimately about who Jesus Christ is. Now, notice there is a pronouncement that the angel makes. This is incredible. Verse 20, he says, Joseph, son of David. So there's the first part. We get this son of David, so we have the connector. Do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now we get this fast forward by the Holy Spirit, the translation that comes and says, this child will be a child of the Holy Spirit. Right? So there's something unique about this child. This child is God Himself. Birthed by the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, capitalized. This is the son that we saw all all the way we talked about Advent. This is the son who is coming. This is the son who is here. The son of God. And you shall call his name Jesus. Literally translated, you'll call his name Savior. And then look at the end of verse 21. What will he do when he comes? Save them, right? So he is your deliverer. But what's he going to save you from? So the prophecy that unfolds in front of Jesus is that He will be the one that will save you from your oppression, but it isn't going to be the oppression of the Romans. It's going to be what you absolutely need, and that is the oppression of sin in your life. 
that you can't possibly follow God until that oppression is lifted and Jesus will be the one who will do that because He will be your Savior. So what's lifted up is the King who's coming. He's not going to be what you think He is, David on a white horse. He is going to be the one who is birthed of the Holy Spirit. He is going to be God with us. And He is going to be the one who will save you from your sins. Is that just an astounding statement? And what Matthew is doing here is he's saying to the Jews, this is the one. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it from Old Testament to New. I'm taking it from death to life. I'm taking it from, from the prophetic into the actual reality that this is who he is. And so we get this beautiful, beautiful statement about who he's going to be and what he's going to be when he comes. You are going to find a deliverer. And the deliverer will be the one who will deliver you from your sins. You see it? So now we're continuing from the genealogy through to this first one. And notice finally Joseph's response. I love this. Verse 24, And Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Obedience. It's an incredible statement, but what Joseph does is he steps right into it and he says, Lord, I heard you, and I will be obedient. And guess what? In obedience is life. Disobedience is death. Obedience is life. And what Joseph steps into here is his role to take Mary against all custom and against all things that in anything that was customary at that time period, because he had rights. He he bypasses his rights. He's obedient to the angel, takes Mary to his wife, and becomes the one who helps raise the Son of God, who is the king. Why? Well, think about it from the fact that what is pronounced here is that Joseph, the son of David, is going to raise the king who is the ultimate one who will sit on the throne of David. He's taking care of his heritage. It's an incredible statement that Matthew makes. So there's that, the birth prophecy. Now we get the birthplace prophecy. Any questions so far? We're plowing through them, I know. A lot of time we could spend more on them, but let's go to Matthew 2, 6. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Let's read 5. Ooh. (laughs) Somebody read verses 5 through 7. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judea. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Okay. So Matthew has now given us the lineage. He's now given us the birth. Now he's going to give us the birthplace. And we've talked about this birthplace a lot from the pulpit. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea. So Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, the city of bread that comes forward. This is the birthplace of where it's going to come. This comes from Micah 5.2, which says exactly the same thing. Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Understand the translation here. This is the house of bread, the city of bread in the land of praise. Isn't that a great statement? The city of, the city of bread in the land of praise. You are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will be a shepherd to my people. Now, look very specifically at what this king is going to be. What are the two words in that prophecy that are descriptors of this particular king? He's going to be first what? A ruler. And second, do you see anywhere in there that he is going to be this conquering hero on a white horse? 
We don't get it here. What we get is he is going to be a ruler who will be a shepherd. And exactly, what did Jesus call himself? The great fulfilling this prophetic statement about him and the place that he comes from. Now this gets really fun here. The wise men come, they come into Jerusalem and they go straight to Herod. And you remember the question that they ask? Where is the king of the Jews, right? Now understand, who are they talking to? They're talking to Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, right? And what does Herod say? Does Herod look at them and say, right here, boys, you're looking at him. I'm him, I'm the king of the Jews. He doesn't say that. What Herod says to the Magi is this, when you find him, tell me so I may worship him. Isn't that an incredible statement? Herod knew deep down he wasn't the king of the Jews. And yet, interestingly enough, here are these, these, these Gentile wise men. Do we know how many there were? Thank you. I'm really glad you said that. We have no idea how many wise men there were. We think there are three because there were three gifts, right? But there could have been two, there could have been five, there could have been 600. We don't know. But because of their gifts, and by the way, these were gifts of burial spices and perfumes pointing to the way of what this king would eventually do for us. He would eventually die for us. These three come, these are Gentile kings coming from the east, coming from the Arab nation. They're coming over and they actually go to the king of the Jews, to Herod, and they say, where is he? Now, who's the one that has found him? Is it the Gentiles or the Jews that have found him in the scriptures? It's the Gentiles, right? So who should have found him? The Jews, and the Jews specifically who were underneath Herod, who should have been looking for this. Because where do the the Magi find it? They find it by searching the Scriptures. And they find it because of this particular passage. They find it in this, that, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we get this incredible statement that we not only have a king who is the son of David, we have a king who will be born miraculously, who is God with us, who follows the genealogical line, born of a virgin of the Holy Spirit. And now we get that he will come out of Jerusalem, uh, come out of Bethlehem, the house of bread and the house of praise, which places him, by the way, right in the right lineage because he's now of the tribe of Judah, right? And he is the lion of Judah. So we get an incredible statement about the king and now the place that he is going to rule from and that he will be a ruler and a shepherd. Beautiful descriptor words about who this king will be. Right? Questions? We're through three of them. We have 47 more to go. Okay, number four. This one's called the National Prophecy. And this will refer back to Hosea 11.1. This one comes... Let me find it. Okay, go to verse 15. So let me read 14 and 15. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother uh, by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, uh, spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11 says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And this is referring back to when the nation of Israel had gone into bondage with Egypt. And ultimately they're called out by, through Moses. This deliverer, Moses, who is going to bring the nation of Israel through the Exodus out of bondage to Egypt. So that's the backdrop that we've got here in Hosea 11.1. 1. We all know that story, right? 400 years in bondage, Moses comes in, the plagues, everything that happens in the nation comes out. 
So we get this, this prophecy referring back to that time and period. And it's another one of those dual fulfillments. So the prophecy from Hosea is that this, is, well, this will happen to the nation. We move fast forward and here is Joseph who is warned in a dream to take his newborn son because they're after him to kill him, to take him down to Egypt. Now here's a really fun, fun thought. Do you remember the three gifts that were brought by the wise men? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Good. Gold, frankincense, frankincense, and myrrh being burial spices or burial perfumes, but gold. Now, this is an interesting thought. What was Joseph's profession? Carpentry, right? He leaves his hometown of Nazareth. He goes down to Egypt. He has to start his trade over again. Most of us, if we move to another town, it's nice to have a little bit of savings in your pocket to be able to make ends meet until you can get your trade going. Where do you think the spending money in his pocket came from? The gold that was delivered. So that Joseph could get a new start in Egypt, God made every single provision he could possibly make. And he provides gold for Joseph to go down with his family and start over in Egypt. Then, while he's in Egypt... God calls them out of Egypt to come back to, to proclaim God as who He is, to come back to the nation of Israel. So He calls him out of Egypt, and that's what this prophecy refers to. That out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. We go to the Old Testament, we see Egypt being brought out. We see the nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt through the deliverer Moses. We see now the Son being brought out to become the Deliverer for the nation of Israel and become the Deliverer because He is the King in the line of David, the one who is prophesied to come. And just by the way, statistically, if eight of these prophecies were true, the the statistics of how eight of these prophecies could come true in one person is like (coughs) 10 to the 100th power. I mean, it's just an unbelievable number. And Jesus doesn't just fulfill these seven. He fulfills about 300. Again, one more time, this is Matthew saying, this is the king. This is the one. Not only is he the one by his birth and by his birthplace, but he is the one that goes back to even Old Testament prophecy, even to the smallest detail by being called out of Egypt to come be the deliverer for the nation of Israel. Do you see it? If you're, if you're a Jewish audience right now and you're listening to Matthew, your eyes are starting to bug out because you're starting to see over and over again how Matthew is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2 and you get Peter who stands up in front of the entire, the entire audience in Jerusalem and he preaches, this is Jesus, the one we crucified. And now you begin to understand why the response from the audience was this, tell us what we need to do. It was a driving force to action that when Peter stood up and he, and he made this incredible statement about who Jesus is, writings like this become really, really significant. And they become significant because they put the absolute exclamation mark on who Jesus was. And from Matthew's perspective to a Jewish audience, Jesus was the king, no question about it. So four of those things have been fulfilled right now. We've got three more to go. This one's pretty gruesome. This is called the death prophecy. Matthew 2, verse 18. Somebody read 17, just read 17 through 
Uh, read 17 through 19. Somebody grab 17 through 19. Come on. You're good. You're good. Thank you. This one we call the death prophecy because what it, what, it, what it lays out for us is all of the different ways that rejection was going to come to Jesus. Rejection of Him as the King. Rejection of Him as the Messiah. Rejection of Him across the board. Because what was rejected here, this is, this is referring back specifically to when Rachel, the mother of the northern Israelite tribe of Benjamin and Joseph... Her sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. When she had been entombed near Bethlehem, she was crying out very specifically, weeping for her children as they were led away into the Babylonian captivity. Okay, So this is referring all the way back to 586 B.C. Now, the prophetic statement comes forward as Rachel's weeping for her children being taken off into captivity. Now, we bring that forward and we see this applied specifically to when Herod goes through and begins to kill off every child from age 0 to 2 years old. The reason he's trying to do that is so that this king, who is going to usurp his throne rightfully because he's the son of David, because he's prophesied coming out of the right kingdom, the right line, the right town, the right everything, he is being lifted up as the potential king, and Herod doesn't like that, so he's going to go kill all of them. Now, understand this. This is potentially genocide from everybody from 0 to 2, all males from 0 to 2. Now, what happens to the nation of Israel if all males from 0 to 2 are wiped out? You've got a whole generation that's gone, and gone because this one king is so paranoid he's trying to wipe out the one who is the rightful king. What does God do? He sends him down to Egypt, so he bypasses that. But still, this whole prophecy is its that view of Rachel weeping for her children who are taken off into captivity. It's now that same Rachel coming forward in the New Testament, weeping over all of these children who are being killed. Not taken into captivity, but those who are being killed. So generation of the nation of Israel is lost. And lost because this king, supposed Jewish king, is out there killing the children ages 0 to 2. Boy, that's a gruesome thing, don't you think? Just an incredible statement that follows, and it's an incredible statement about the rejection that would come to Jesus, because ultimately, what do they do to Jesus? Yeah. And who weeps? This is Rachel, who is the mother of a nation. We now get Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, who weeps at at the cross. The comparison and the parallels here are just spectacular and gruesome. So this is the rejection, and by the way, it's the rejection both. It's prophesied that the rejection is both from the Gentiles and the Jews. Because Babylon was a Gentile nation. They're the ones who take the children captive. But here in the New Testament, it's a Jewish king, supposedly Jewish king, that kills Christ. So we get this on both sides. The Jews and the Gentiles that will absolutely take this king and reject him as king. Gruesome, gruesome prophecy. (sighs) Okay, Matthew 2.23. This one's a fun one. 
Uh, Let me read this. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. This is really, this is how God is just directing over and over again. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now here's, this is the most controversial of these prophecies, and it's controversial for this. We can find no place in all of Scripture, in all of the Old Testament, where there was a prophecy specifically stating Jesus will be a Nazarene. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Until you understand that we're spelling, from an English spelling, we're spelling the word Nazareth incorrectly. Am I right? We're spelling the word Nazareth incorrectly. You see, when, when the Latins and the Greeks translated that, the letter Z, they used a letter Z, but in the Hebrew, there's three different letters for the letter S. One of those is the letter that stands for a T-S. It's the letter... Thank you. It's that letter. And so when you absolutely get this, what the word Nazareth actually translates to is the word Netzareth, with the T-S in there. When you get that, you get this, that he was a man from Netzer. He is the Netzer man from Netzerville. Netzer translates to the word this. It translates to the word branch. Now you go back to the Old Testament and you begin to see prophecies unfold one after another about Jesus being the branch from the root of Jesse. Well, gee, that makes sense because go back to our study of the book of Ruth. And you get Ruth who marries Boaz, who gives birth to Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David. And the line of Christ comes out of the birth of David, right? So this branch... Literally, the translation is this, that Jesus will be the branch man coming from the branch town. And all of a sudden, these prophetic words begin to unfold in Isaiah primarily, but the other one is in Zechariah, is that right? Where he is pronounced as the branch man from branch town. When you put it all together, we now get this incredible unfolding just with the little Hebrew change in the Hebrew letter. We get an incredible unfolding that he is the one who is translated very specifically out of that he is the branch man coming out of branch town. Got it? Really, really, this is one who has stumped them, and and it's stumped a lot of scholars from this standpoint. There are a lot of liberal scholars today that say you can't trust the Bible. It's not true. And they will point to this, that there is no prophetic word about Nazareth until you get to the right and proper spelling of the word. And when you get the right and proper spelling, you get the translation that means he is the branch man from branch town. And then all of a sudden, it makes all the sense in the world. You see it? Unbelievable unfolding. And i got three minutes to get you through the last one. This final one coming out of Matthew 3.3. Matthew 3.3. In those days, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. In the Old Testament times, when a king would come back from war, they would actually go out and straighten the roads. If the roads, the pathways that they had traveled had become curved or had gotten ruts or stones in them, they would literally send slaves out to prepare the way for the king to return. And it's called preparing the way of of the king. That preparing the way meant they filled in the potholes. It meant they would actually literally straighten the road so the path of the king was straight into town. Now think of what's being said here. 
Let me reread this one more time. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, making this prophetic word about him. Remember, this is coming from Isaiah, so this is a number of years back in the past. The voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now what was John there to do? John was there specifically to point people to whom? Yeah, you can say it out loud, it's okay. He was pointing people to Jesus. And pointing people to Jesus, what he's saying is, it's time to make the path straight because the King is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the path straight so the King has this nice smooth ride, smooth ride into the city. And that's the prophetic statement that's coming out of this. It's that, that you will prepare the way for the King to arrive. And what John the Baptist does is, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing to Jesus. Right? What's the statement that he makes when he sees Jesus? Right. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Now, takes away the sins of the world. We have a prophecy that says He came to be the Savior and deliver us from our sins. So John's pointing the way through this Old Testament prophecy. The Lamb of God who would sacrifice Himself for us. This is the ruler and the shepherd. Isn't it interesting that he calls himself a shepherd? And here he is, the Lamb of God Himself. Over and over again, these prophetic statements coming out of Matthew point us again and again and again to Jesus is the King, Jesus is the King, Jesus is the King, Jesus is the King. That forms the basis for what will be Matthew's statement throughout the entire Gospel that he writes. Jesus is the King. So we get this incredible statement starting with the first genealogy that we're going from Abraham through that covenant, through David and that covenant, into the birth into the prophetic statement about where he's going to come from, into all the prophecies that talk about who he is and who he's going to be. And at the end of the first three chapters in the book of Matthew, we get this unbelievable statement about a king who has come, pointing directly to who he is, fulfilling seven prophecies in the process, seven of 300, and there will be more that follow. But this is Matthew making the statement to the Jews very specifically, this is the guy. He is the king you've been looking for. Do you see it? All the way through the seven prophecies. So let's just ask this question. The book of Matthew is confirming what concerning the person of Jesus Christ? That he is the king. Right. And if you take that all the way to the person of David, he is not only the king, but he is the king who is the forever king on a forever throne, the throne of David established back in 2 Samuel 7. Look at Matthew 3.17 and you're going to see God's response. God's response to who Jesus is is this. Verse 16, When Jesus had been baptized, He came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. He saw the Spirit of God descending on Him like a dove and alighting on Him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now think about this from this perspective. Had His ministry started yet? So there was, there's no performance situation here. God the Father is looking down on His Son and saying, right now, right here, at the beginning, this is My Son, and I am well pleased in Him. The Jews' response, in specific the Jewish rulers, what was the Jews' response? Did they accept Him as King? Reject Him? What was the Gentiles' response? Did they accept Him as King? They reject Him. Yep. And then ultimately, he's a crucified king. 
And then He's a risen King. Final question of the morning is this. What's my response? As I look at this Jesus, and I see prophetic fulfillment after prophetic fulfillment, and I see what Matthew has done to set Him up as the King of the Jews, do I believe that? And if I believe that, does my life reflect that I am one who follows the King? Questions? Thoughts? Comments? Anybody but Matt. <laughs> yeah? Um, you know, you're talking about the Jewish eyes bugging out at some of these prophecies. Um, when you read Jewish eschatology, you realize you know, they weren't blind to the suffering servant Messiah. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. And they were expecting a Messiah, and they called him Messiah, son of Joseph. Right. And they're talking about Joseph of the Old Testament, of course. Right. But it's ironic how God picked a man named Joseph to be his earthly father during the suffering servant. And he ultimately will save Israel from Rome, but not in his first coming. It'll be the revised Rome that comes in the end times. So, exactly right. I love having a Hebrew scholar here. Isn't it great? It's just wonderful. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? One that I've thought about from time to time, it's very sobering to me because Christ is king. We are heirs to the throne because of our relationship, because of what he's done for us and our relationship with trust in him. And I sit there thinking, if I'm an heir to the throne, how am I living my life in preparation to reign? And you can think about all the, the earthly examples of, of what heir to the throne go through in terms of being prepared to ultimately reign and that challenge for me. Actually, if you look back in the time of Solomon, when Proverbs were being written, Proverbs actually to begin with were a series of statements for the courtiers in the court. These were for the young men growing up through the court to become royalty. And so the whole book of Proverbs is live this way, this is wisdom, this is not. Live this way, live this way. And it was a whole series of teachings specifically for those coming up through the, through the court of the king on how to become royalty. The preparation for that was enormous. It was intense. Which now takes you back to what happened to Jesus in the wilderness. Forty days of this incredible, intense statement about we're prepping you for what's going to happen. Great statement. Anything else? Did it help? Seven prophecies looking at the... You may not look at the, at, the, at the birth story, at the Christmas story coming out of Matthew. You may look at it differently now. Because it's an incredible statement of prophecy fulfilled, of prophecy fulfilled, showing him as the king. Well, let me pray for us and we'll go. Father, thank you for this morning. We do stand in awe and we are amazed when we see how you have revealed your son. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we are children of the King. We are children who, by a trust relationship in your Son, have come into that that inheritance. Father, there's no better place to live. There's no better place to be than to be walking with you. Thank you for your Son who came, was born, lived, died, arose, and now lives in us that we might have life and have it abundantly. Lord, it's obvious if you can do all of this, if you can do all of this through these prophetic words about your Son, then you can transform us day by day into His image.
We are children of the King. Amen and amen.